And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it's 2012, and despite the fears of Roland Emmerich and the ancient race of Maya, the world did not end. This is the end. Though, if you sat through the three-hour-long first instalment of the Hobbit trilogy, you'll probably have wished it had. I'm going on an adventure! Poland and Ukraine share hosting duties this time, Something that hasn't gone down well with everyone. Stay at home, watch it on TV. Don't even risk it. You could end up coming, you know, you're coming back in a coffin. Ah, it's all going to be okay. But it is, regrettably, the last time that I will say four groups of four, top two go through, and it's knockout football all the way. So let's go and see what Group A has to offer us. The tournament kicks off with hosts Poland facing... Oh, yay! Look who's back! It's former champions Greece! We were the champions in 2004 and nobody expected that. Yeah, you can say that again. Themis Kassaris is the managing editor at Sport24 in Greece. Our third consecutive appearance in the final stage was a chance for the team to, to set the record straight. To showcase that, OK, maybe we won't be the champions ever again, but we are a team that should be considered one of the, the fighting ones and the good teams that deserve to be in the knockout uh, stage. So, uh, how does that go? It was uh, a nightmarish uh, start, uh, to be honest with you, because uh, Socrates Papastathopoulos was sent off and uh, a few minutes later we have lost the other centre-back with uh, a serious knee injury. Avram Papadopoulos uh, was taken off, he tore his uh, ACL uh, ligaments and we were at 1-0 uh, down, but we showcased a great uh, fighting spirit to get back into the game and equalize, and actually feeling a little disappointed at the final whistle because we had a chance to win the game when we won the penalty, but uh, unfortunately, Karagounis missed the penalty. So at the end of the day, we were feeling disappointed because we had the chance to actually win it. 1-1 for those two. Later that evening, Russia lay down a marker. Four years ago, they were beaten 4-1 in their first game. Now the hunted becomes the hunter. Eventually. Alexander Kirjakov, uh, who, yeah, missed a hatful against the Czechs, and uh, he was he was really suffering by the end. I think by the, by the time he got substituted, it was basically, you know, putting him out of his misery. Sasha Gurionov is a Russian football journalist and part of the Totally Football Show. But the rest of the team played quite well, particularly uh, Zagoyev. This was he was 21 at the time, and this was sort of his breakout tournament. And he uh, he had an absolutely brilliant first game. So he scored twice, and he really. He really felt like the key man for this maybe uh, slightly old look and slightly new look Russian. In the second round of games, the Czech Republic shake off that big defeat with a win over Greece, while Poland draw with Russia to leave the group so finely balanced that anyone can qualify. 
and anyone can be eliminated in the final game. Greece went out in the group stage last time, but not again. Not on Captain Karagounis' watch. He gathered everybody around him and he said, listen guys, forget about our defeat. We're still alive. We're very lucky to have our, uh, our luck in our hands because if we win against Russia, no matter what, we're through to the quarterfinals. And uh, let's focus on our game and let's win it. And he told me that he phoned his wife and told her, uh, bring the kids and everybody should come to Poland to watch our third game versus Russia because we're going to win it and I want you to, uh, to be there to celebrate with me because we're going to win and we're going to advance to the quarterfinals. And this is exactly what happened. I think there was a bit of an expectation that the Greece would open up and they would attack and there would be some, some zones to, to get into. And what happened was that Greece didn't. And I think the Russians were very much surprised by this. And of course, then it becomes very hard work. But then Greece aren't really offering anything. And then a disaster. Injury time at the end of the first half. It's, it's a throw down the line. Karagounis is outnumbered. There's, I think, three Russians around him. And um, Ignashevich comes over and the ball in, you know, goes up for the header. And the ball just slices off his head in such a way that he takes out all the Russian defenders and it falls to Karagounis, who has a straight run at goal. Very impressive finish. And the Greeks are 1-0 up. And the Russians, obviously, are going into the dressing room in complete shock. And second half is a completely different proposition because now Greece properly dig in. There is no space. And the Russians, that you can see them wilting. And you can see that you can almost feel like the spirit and the fight is going out of the team. And it felt as well that, yeah, physically, they were past their peak. And how does Karagounis celebrate? He brought his uh, kids into the pitch to celebrate with uh, the players because he had it all planned in his head that, you know what, we're not done yet and we are with our back uh, to the wall. We're playing against a team that it's 17 games unbeaten. That was the, the record that Russia had at that point. But we're not done yet and uh, we're going to win it and we're going to qualify to the quarterfinals. And they did. Poland, don't they? They're out of their own tournament already, beaten by the Czech Republic, who go through to the knockout stages. Onwards to Group B. Where it's another group of death. Germany, Portugal, the Netherlands, Denmark. Gets off to quite a start. I don't think anybody in the, in the Netherlands had the idea that this would go badly. Elko Born is a Dutch football expert. These players were getting older, but they were still really, really, really good. There was still a lot of quality in the squad. So I think I think a lot of people in the Netherlands felt very confident uh, about Euro 2012. Oops! It started out pretty well against Denmark on the surface. It went really well. I mean, they created created quite a few chances, but I don't know something was missing there, and they couldn't they couldn't finish it. And it has to be said, you know, Denmark played pretty well as well, better than expected. I really think that game was a clear case of the Netherlands uh, underestimating their opponents, and you know, playing pretty well can be good enough sometimes. But uh, in this game, it wasn't it wasn't good enough at all. Germany edged past Portugal in their first game thanks to a goal from a man who really hadn't made the grade in 2008, Mario Gomez. Certainly in the group stage, he was very effective for Germany. Raphael Honigstein is the Athletics' German football correspondent. It was a tough group they had, but Germany managed to win all the three games, uh, thanks largely to Mario Gomez being very much on the money. Pedira, 
Vielleicht die letzte Aktion von Gomez und das Tor. 72. Minute Deutschland führt. Portugal need a response and they find one against Denmark, but only just. It all started so well. Portugal went 2-0 up. Then Bentner got his customary goal against Portugal and they equalised. And at that point, Portugal were pretty much staring at, you know, a, a very early exit from the tournament. Tom Kandart is the creator of Portugal. Quite a dramatic winner with uh, Silvestre Varela, uh, you know, having a just swing of the leg, completely miskicking his volley and then spinning round with his other foot and just planting a beautiful finish into the bottom of the into the bottom of the net and suddenly Portugal were back in it. Quite a notable game, I think, for perhaps Cristiano Ronaldo's worst performance in a Portugal shirt, missed absolute sitters, a couple of, you know, a couple of, of chances which seemed easier to score than to miss. As for the Dutch... A match for the Netherlands against Germany is always a bit of a, always a, bit of a derby match, you know. Lots of history there because of 1974, because of what happened in history as well. So, you know, in a way it felt like, okay, if there's going to be one team we need to beat and if there's going to be one team we need to get really, really hyped up to play against, then maybe Germany is not so bad an opponent. Of course, Germany has quite a lot of quality as well, and that showed in the match too. And if the players and fans got hyped up for this match, I think they did, but it clearly wasn't enough uh, to overcome Germany. And um, yeah, Gomez scores twice. Van Persie manages to put one in as well, but uh, all in all, not enough. The Dutch one was probably the, the standout performance as far as the group stage is concerned. They, they beat a very good Dutch team. Uh, with Mario Gomez uh, really shining. But the Dutch aren't done yet. They still have to play Portugal. It's all or nothing, really. To win by a couple of goals difference, that's what we have to do. And it's difficult. It's impossible, really. But, you know, there's only one uh, thing left to do, and that's just to uh, give it an honest go. So the starting 11 there was pretty offensive as well, with Robin in there, with Snyder in there, with Van Persie in there, with Van der Vaart in there as well who manages right in the 11th minute to put in a wonderful shot from distance. A great, great goal. And for a second, it did feel like in that match, okay, is the miracle of Kharkov, is it possible that it will happen? You know, we've got that early goal in. Uh, there's lots of attacking players on the pitch, lots of attacking quality in those players. You know, if we score a wonder goal like this, who knows what could happen? And for a moment there, it kind of felt like, okay, maybe that 1% chance is still there. But the Netherlands haven't come up with a plan for Cristiano Ronaldo. I think he followed his, possibly his worst game in a Portugal shirt with a contender for his, his very best. He really was just absolutely unstoppable in this game. This was a a real masterclass by Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, he scored two goals, hit the woodwork twice. In towards Ronaldo! Two on Portugal! He just absolutely tore the Netherlands apart to, for some reason, kind of just gave him the... I remember listening to some interviews before that game and their coach saying, no, you know, we don't believe in man-marking, in putting too many resources into stopping one man. Well, <laughs> I think at the end of that game, he might have changed his philosophy because... Uh, it's, uh, I remember also seeing several headlines all around the European countries after that game, which had, I think, three different countries had the exact same headline, which was Netherlands 1, Cristiano Ronaldo 2. So the Portuguese joined Germany, who wrap up a perfect start with a win against Denmark, 
and whose squad is starting to build something a little bit special. The addition of players like Kroos, who was slightly further advanced in his development, you had Marco Roy suddenly. So it seemed very exciting, Andre Schürrle. There was a lot of hope that Germany would do it, but still, I remember being pleasantly surprised just how comfortably they negotiated the group stage. All of which takes us to Group C, which in other circumstances would also be considered a group of death. But here, I guess it's more like a group of life-changing injury. It's Spain, Italy, Croatia, and poor old Ireland. And guess what? Italy have got another new manager. Not much was expected of Italy going into this tournament because they had crashed out of the group stages of the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, a group which had Slovakia, New Zealand and Paraguay in it. So that did not go down well. James Horncastle is the Athletics' Italian football correspondent. Marcello Lippi, who had come back after winning the 2006 World Cup, uh, no longer had the magic touch. So it was up to Cesare Prandelli to kind of uh, bring through uh, a new generation whilst kind of building on what Antonio Conte was doing at Juventus with uh, Chiellini Bonucci. Ireland are well beaten by Croatia in their first game, but the meeting between Italy and Spain is much, much closer. It was a very good game. The reports in Spain were rather um, reports saying that perhaps Spain didn't have uh, enough uh, depth and enough cutting edge. Alvaro Romeo is a Spanish football journalist and part of the Totally Football Show. But at the same time, it was uh, a game in which Italy pressed all the buttons and tried to hurt Spain in many ways. To be going up against the world champions and the holders of the Euros was very daunting indeed. And yet, Prandelli went with a 3-5-2 modelled on that Juventus team I just mentioned. And as we would find out over the, the next coming years, this was Spain's kryptonite and they couldn't press it. And so Italy were able to kind of do a number on them. Toto Di Natale got his revenge, if you like, for missing a penalty in Euro 2008 when Italy were knocked out by Spain. But then Spain showed that um, this team had a lot of experience. I mean, at the end of the day, if you arrive into a tournament after having won two tournaments, uh, you've got a certain know-how. And uh, Spain responded literally four minutes after Di Natale scored with the goal from Cesc Fabregas. However, I would say, yeah, that was very much uh, getting off on the right foot to a major tournament. The Italians pick up another draw against Croatia in the second game. Ireland, on the other hand, go from bad to worse against Spain. That Irish team just never knew how to find the, the way against Spain. I think that uh, tactically, perhaps they were a little bit more agricultural, with all due respect, but Spain was very, very sophisticated. And I think that it was pretty much inevitable that Spain... Uh, scored the second, the third and the fourth after scoring the first goal so early. So Fernando Torres scored the brace that helped him regain his confidence. David Silva scored another goal and Tess Fabregas too. It was always a big ask for Ireland to get anything from this group. But they've got Italy in the final game. 
so perhaps the venerable Trap can still shock his mother country with a nope, not even close. Trap, uh, even in uh, the 2002 World Cup, 2004, looked like he was, you know, he was a White Walker from Game of Thrones, and yet he he, he keeps coming. I mean, he is the Night King of of, of major tournament football. Except that, you know, as we all saw in Game of Thrones, after all the build-up, it wasn't very difficult to knock him out. So, a bit of a bridge too far for Trap. Spain pick up the narrowest of victories against Croatia, and they join the Italians in the knockout round. Over in Group D, oh look who's finally bothered to show up. It's England. along with France, Sweden, and the co-hosts Ukraine. And England haven't exactly had the best preparation. It was chaotic coming into this tournament because not only had we got a new head coach, so Roy Hodgson had been appointed, Fabio Capello no more. Change in system looking very lightly, as we know Roy Hodgson very well, and he loves the 4-4-2 and seems to be adopting that in the pre-tournament friendlies. Lindsay Hooper is an English reporter and part of the Totally Football Show. John Terry, who is seen as our, our master defender, the person that we re- should be relying on more than ever, is in court. So that's not boding well. Wayne Rooney had a suspension as well in this tournament, only available for a couple of the games. So it, it isn't the start to the tournament that all England fans would be wanting. France have also made a change. They've transitioned from Ramon Dominic and his star signs to Laurent Blanc, World Cup winning defender, national hero, and given that he won the French title with Bordeaux, pretty decent manager too. Laurent Blanc was was really welcome to take over Raymond Domenech. Finally, finally, that was the end of Domenech. Julien Laurent is a French football journalist and part of the Totally Football Show. There was no way they would have kept him after 2010 and, and South Africa and the World Cup and all the stuff that happened there. And Blanc was the outstanding candidate anyway because he won the league uh, with Bordeaux, he did a, a great job there. He obviously played there. He was part of the, the 98 and 2000 team. So he had a lot of credit with the fans, the federation as well, with a lot of people who at the time where the federation was, you know, were already there pretty much for some of them when he was playing. He had this great image. There was a lot of things going his way. So... What happens when France meet England? It was a strange one because a one-all draw with France and we should be buzzing. But I remember an overwhelming feeling of being a bit disappointed in this England performance. And it felt quite harsh because we'd actually taken the lead. Jolien Lescott with a header. Gerard looked really at it. His free kick delivery got the assist for that one. And it felt like there was something there, but England were hardly getting anything on the ball in this match. There was very low possession stats afterwards. It felt quite organised and defensive, but it didn't feel very exciting. Uh, Samir Najri, he scored from the edge of the area, uh, equalised for France. And we came away, I think, knowing that a point was great in an opening game of a tournament, but that there was more to this England team and there was more that we wanted to get out of this. And and I left feeling a little bit underwhelmed. And already the draw and the performance is not the main thing. The main thing is Samir Najri scores the goal and his reaction, he put his finger, uh, his finger in front of his, of his lips, of his mouth and looks at us in the press box. And then you understand already that this is it. He didn't like all the criticism. He didn't like the negativity around him. He scored a goal. It's a nice goal. It's a nice shot from just outside the box. And then he comes and starts trolling us. 
So you can just imagine for us journalists watching that go like, here we go again. And then was something that was really positive. He goes again on to off the field matters, relationship between French media and the French players, which is what we had with Dominic for so many years. And we thought it was over. And now it was, it was back on the agenda. Uh, back, that's all we were talking about. I saw what the editors in Paris wanted to hear about. And then, and then the circus started again. Having watched Poland struggle in Group A, co-hosts Ukraine are in no mood to go quietly into the night. In the battle of the aging superstrikers, it's Andrei Shevchenko 2, Zlatan Ibrahimovic 1. But Ukraine can't beat France, who put themselves on the verge of qualification by beating them 2-0 in Donetsk after some quite extraordinary weather. Uh, and we are engulfed in the midst of a storm which I know is playing havoc from time to time with the, the pictures and the sound that you're receiving back in the UK. And we do apologise for that. It is, as you will gather, uh, rather out of our control at the moment. It looked like, at some point, the Donbass Arena could, could fill of water because it was raining so much and then it would be a swimming pool. And then, you know, we could go in and jump from the stands and uh, have fun in the water. Anyway. Despite all of that, France, attacking the deep end in the second half, secure a 2-0 win. So what of England? They face Sweden. This was the game of the tournament for England, I think, because... Uh, Sweden, who'd always shown that they they were good opposition, certainly in major tournaments, they had Olaf Melberg, who was brilliant in this match. So despite England taking a lead through Andy Carroll, because um, just to remind you, there's no Wayne Rooney, he's suspended, so Andy Carroll is getting the nod and he's nodding them in. Um, it's Olaf Melberg who gets a brace, and so Sweden are leading by two goals to one. And because of the experience with the game with France, where we only had... I think it was the one effort on target. I think Lescott's header might have been it. It felt like, where are any more goals going to come from? But then Theo Walcott is introduced. Not only did he score the equaliser, but he set up one of my favourite goals I've ever seen, um, which was Danny Welbeck's uh, deaf back heel um, to score the winner. Theo Walcott accelerating, pulled back towards Danny Welbeck! And it really, really galvanised. It got everyone thinking, actually, this England team, although they've been organised, although they haven't been dominating possession that much, they have got some talented players. Ukraine now need to beat England to survive. But England have got their talisman back. Sort of. Wayne Rooney's back and he takes a little while to get going. There are a couple of opportunities, but it is with his head that he manages to score. So England go 1-0 up against Ukraine. And that did mean England topped the group despite not being at their best just yet. France, after two consecutive disaster tournaments, do their very best to screw this one up as well. So I remember the day before the Sweden game, we were spying on, on training, the training behind closed doors. I'm sorry, what now? I found this, this place really hidden in the, within the stadium. I was kind of in a box, like halfway, like on my knees, but like a bit laying down. And I could see so well the pitch. You... You were in a box. Okay. I'm watching them and they're dreadful. 
they're really dreadful. And I know it's only it's only training, and I know you know I know. And you day you're the day before the game, so maybe you take it a bit lightly, and you know you're not you're not full in, hundred uh, percent. You know you go for tackle. I, I I know, but still, I've I've spied on a lot of them, and this is really poor. Wow, I um I think I did football journalism wrong. I never climbed in any boxes, but you know what? He's right. There's no improvement when the game starts. We could have lost that game five 0 easily. In a way, I was cross at Blanc, and I remember one of us writing an article on Blanc, and and we didn't care saying that we spied that training because they knew we were doing it anyway. But we went really high, hard on him, saying like, you know, he should have sorted this, sorted this out the night before the game at training when he could see like all of us spying that there was something not right there, and he didn't. And that was it. eventually that was his downfall, and that was his problem: the fact that it was too. He was too cool, too laid back, too lenient, too like, yeah, it's okay, don't worry. That's 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 his personality. And there's a point where, especially with those players who are really, really talented, but also ill-disciplined, arrogant, and and not really putting the shift in, that at some point he should have said, hey, hang on a minute, this is not good enough. You know, let's step, let's step up the, the energy and everything. And he didn't. And for me, that defeat against... I guess Sweden then would have big repercussions because that meant playing Spain in the next round instead of someone else, and 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 that's where that's where that Euros went out the windows basically. Fortunately, it was enough to get through to the knockout stages along with England, and it's to the quarterfinals where we're heading next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yes, it's 2012. We're all dancing like we're riding a miniature pony. Trying to lasso what little hope there is left for the music scene. But there's serious work to be done. It is the knockout round of Euro 2012, after all. First up, it's the Czech Republic against Portugal. And after disappointments in 2004, 2006, 2008 and 2010, could this finally be the year of you-know-who? Ronaldo was just really on fire and yeah, another great performance by him. It was a bit of a personal battle between him and the Czech goalkeeper. And uh, I think maybe they had about four or five one-on-ones that the, the goalkeeper got the best off. Also, Ronaldo hit the woodwork twice, if memory serves me right. But he did get the all-important goal, you know, a very good diving header. And uh, yeah, it was nice, sweet revenge also for Portugal who had got knocked out by the Czech Republic at this very same stage in the 1996 Euros with that famous Karol Poborski uh, chip over over Vitor Bayer. So yeah, Portugal were through. Uh, you know they were playing well, confidently, and 
you know, Ronaldo was just on fire and people were really starting to believe that he, almost on his own, could, uh, you know, do something very spectacular, maybe take Portugal all the way. Germany look in fine form, but they have Greece in the quarterfinals. And Greece, after their catastrophic economic problems, are profoundly in hock to Germany which leads to some mixed feelings ahead of the game. I have to be honest with you, there were definitely some part of the population that thought of this game as more than a football game. I didn't see see it that way, personally, but I I have to be honest, there was a lot of people thinking we're playing Germany and we're going to beat Merkel and uh, all that. In my head, you know, nonsense. The more interesting thing, perhaps, on a, on a pure footballing uh, basis was the fact that Löw made a lot of changes going into this into this game, and I remember him being accused of arrogance beforehand because he rested, I think Mario Gomez and a few others, and he brought in a very attacking team with with real wingers in in Royce and Schürrle, and the effect was devastating. I mean, four two was sounds sort of fairly even, but it wasn't. I mean, Germany really blew Greece away. They Conceded a couple of goals, but the game was was really thrilling in Gdansk. I remember it really well. I was there. You thought Germany had not hadn't just sort of won their fourth game, but actually they were getting stronger in this competition. We managed to to set the record straight. That okay, we're not gonna win it again, but we're definitely not a team that uh, the best we can do is go out in the group stage only scoring one goal and uh, with three defeats like it happened in 2008 that we are a team that should be respected and feared because we are capable of being in the final eight in the quarterfinals of the the tournament and two years ago we went to the world cup and managed to score our first goals in the world cup and managed to get our first win in the world cup so we were feeling that we we're going to show everybody that you know what 2008 was a parenthesis, a bad performance, and that's all. And uh, we're not that team that we're going to be embarrassing from now on in the final stages. No, we're going to be there and fight for our place in the, in the best eight. The clash of the round is in Donetsk, where Spain face a France side that we just cannot get our head around. French journalist come super spy Julien Laron has talked his way into a Ukrainian man's house, gone into his back garden, climbed a ladder and is now peering over the wall at Laurent Blanc's secret training session. And it looks like, it looks like they, they're training with Anthony Réveillère, so the, the Lyon right back, our right back, okay. And then Mathieu Debuchy, another right back, as a right midfielder. And I'm like, oh my God, what's going on again here? And now I'm watching Laurent Blanc thinking that he's a mix of Pep Guardiola, Jorgen Klopp, Johan Cruyff and Arrigo Saki, thinking, hey, why don't we play two right backs in this game instead of one? And let's, why don't we play them literally on top of each other to make sure that Spain left-hand side is nullified and that they can't, they can't, they can't hit us on that side? And I'm like, oh my God, that's got disaster written all over it. Maybe it'll be fine in the actual match. Guess from where the goal comes. That bloody right-hand side where you thought, hey, let's double up, triple up, all that stupid idea. And that's where this call from. And we were like, this is pointless. And that's how he finished. He finished on a tactical non-masterclass from Laurent Blanc. I think that in this game, Spain up their game. They show a know-how. They show that 
competitiveness is an art as well. And they kill France slowly. They scored the goal after 18 minutes. Xavi Alonso scored that goal. And then they didn't score a goal for the next 70 minutes until Xavi Alonso scored the penalty. I think that this was a very solid, mature, veteran performance from the Spanish team against the French team. In the last quarterfinal tie, England, who have been all right so far, face Italy. This is the team that you really didn't want to face in this tournament. Italy had looked brilliant, um, both on and off the ball. No one was really matching them. I think it was a lot down to Andrea Perlo, who was just fantastic in this tournament. And he had a brilliant game in this quarterfinal. I think Roy Hodgson took the approach. It needed to be defensive. We had to try and keep Italy out as long as possible. Brendan Rodgers, the uh, the great sage of our time in football, uh, would describe this this performance by Pillow as death by football, death by a thousand passes. That was what Pillow was was inflicting on on England. And certainly, there, there was this feeling after that game that you know why doesn't England produce players like Pillow? But until it had happened to the English, they weren't prepared to give respect to Pirlo. And boy, were they made to respect him in this game, just as, as, as was the case with, say, Zlatan after he, he also kind of humiliated Joe Hart by deciding to bicycle kick uh, a goal from 40 yards past him. Uh, Pirlo did it from a shorter distance, the penalty spot. Yes, dear listener, it goes to penalties. Remember, Hart in this tournament just was very sweary all the time, uh, running behind the goal, swearing for the ball boy to give him the ball, and was shouting at Pirlo whilst he was he was uh, at the penalty spot. And Pirlo, ice cool, just yeah. As we as we went on the on the Euro two thousand podcast, where Totti has the bravado to try the cucchiaio, as as the penenka is known in in Italy, the spoon to just dink it over the keeper and and, uh, and literally kind of put a clown suit on him. That's exactly what Pirlo did with all the kind of style and grace that he embodies. Italy deserved to win the match. I don't think any England fan would have gone away feeling disappointed for not progressing because there wasn't really much to show in that performance that could have suggested we would have got much further anyway and Italy dominated possession. They deserved to win. Off to the semi-finals for the Iberian derby, Portugal against Spain. It's not a classic. Are Spain getting predictable? Yes, I think that it was around this time. Sometimes this style of Spain wasn't uh, quite prolific uh, because the team was uh, lacking perhaps the fluidity that they had in 2008. And I think that there, in 2008 there was a surpri- surprise factor with Spain. And in 2012, that surprise factor was gone. I mean, many teams knew that uh, the best way to suppress the Spanish game was to defend very deep and then try to concede as less as possible and try to profit, you know, the set pieces or long balls to uh, a lone striker. This was a real game of two styles. You know, Portugal very much counter-attacking side at this point and Spain doing their normal trick of just, you know, hogging the ball, you know, at every opportunity. Very close game. I think this for Portugal, you can really pinpoint a key moment in this game, which was right at the end of the 90 minutes. I think it's about the 86 minute. Raul Morelis uh, got the ball near the halfway line. Uh, Ronaldo raced through. Morelis saw the pass, but under hit the pass and that really would have had Ronaldo clean through against Icar Casillas and you would have bet him to score that but he underhit the pass he had to check his run and then defenders came back and in the end he just didn't really have time to, to get a proper shot 
off. Uh, and so into extra time it went. And sometimes uh, Spain looked defensive, not because they wanted to. And this is a very important remark that has to be said here. Not because they wanted to be defensive, but because with the ball, they didn't have the verticality they had in the past. But it's not that Spain wanted to play a deliberate catenaccio or something like that. They just uh, were lacking a striker like David Villa. Maybe they were lacking the uh, speed, uh, quick players in, in many areas of the pitch. Probably the speed was only given to Jordi Alba. He was the only quick player on the pitch. And then, yes, against teams like Portugal, Spain was going to suffer. But after 90 minutes, the extra time was played. Spain showed again that they, they were mature, that they knew how to play in these moments. Portugal too, in all fairness. And Spain came out winner in the penalty shootout. For Portugal, this isn't a story of the team bowing out, but more one of their talisman not even walking up to the spot. And Cristiano Ronaldo might not get to take his penalty. Well, it's funny how I think we were already at this point, 2012, where Cristiano Ronaldo was like the be-all and end-all of the story when it came to Portugal. And uh, yeah, this was definitely the case again here. It was, I think, a mistake which uh, Portugal rectified in future tournaments to, you know, have your most, I suppose you could say, your most reliable penalty taker, leaving him last. And uh, the way the penalty shootout went, he didn't even have the chance to uh, to take the penalty. Will it be a yes or a no? It's a yes, but only just. Cesc Fabregas put Spain into the European Championship final. They've done it the hard way. They were pushed all the way by Portugal. But wouldn't you just know it? Cristiano Ronaldo must have been Portugal's last penalty taker. In the other semi-final, Germany are the out-and-out favourites to beat Italy again. Germany had for years been going into games against Italy thinking this is our time. This is when we are finally going to beat them in a knockout game in tournament football. You know, they they thought it in 1970 in the World Cup semi-final in what was known as the game of the century and instead Germany got beaten. They thought it in the 1982 World Cup final and instead they got beaten. And again, you know, if we, we, we go back to 2006, Germany playing at home in Dortmund where I think they'd never lost they get beaten. And, you know, obviously since then, uh, they kind of progressed under Joachim Lowe. Uh, they were, they were you know, gearing up to be the team that won the World Cup in 2014. And, and no, Italy beat them. Because Italy have a joker in their pack. And Mario Balotelli has been brought into the, the team on the Prandelli. Prandelli, who was very much like a father figure who indulged Balotelli a little bit like uh, Roberto Mancini at club level. And how does Balotelli respond to Prandelli? It's one of the all-time great Italy individual performances. Balotelli heads home the opener after 20 minutes and then, well, how would one describe the sort of goal he scored 16 minutes later? I think it's a proper thunder bastard. Me too. Me too. It's a huge shock and it's a game that outside of Germany and certainly in Italy will forever be associated with Mario Balotelli scoring two goals, especially the iconic celebration after um, after the second goal. But in Germany, it is seen as the one big game that Löw really messed up big time because he took all the things that were good about Germany against Greece, the wing play, the, the fluidity up front, and he 
constructed a very, very narrow midfield with Tony Cross coming in. This is going to sound really strange, but it was at the time, it's even stranger now, coming into Menmark Andrea Pelo. Now, that was a plan that really backfired because Germany were completely hamstrung by their own system. Mesut Özil, who'd had a fantastic tournament up until then, was was completely crowded out by, by Kroos, who was playing in a very similar position, trying to man-mark Andrea Pirlo. And the whole of Germany's game sort of collapsed. And so to Kiev for the final. It's the holders Spain against the mighty Italy. And when these two giants meet, it's always a hard-fought, cagey affair with a fine margins. But hang on, what? It looked like that, yeah. And I'm sure that the odds were a little bit like that. Well, Spain probably and Italy, they won't, con- they won't score many and they won't concede many. But everything changed when Spain scored early. I think that this was probably one of the best games Spain has ever done. In this tournament, altogether with the semi-final against Russia in 2008, Spain was quick. Spain scored a beautiful goal, by the way, uh, famous in Spanish football, uh, that Jordi Alba, uh, one-on-one with uh, Gianluigi Buffon. After doing a diagonal run, from his own side uh, on the left back, running like a winger, uh, waiting for Xavi to give him the ball at the right time, and then, uh, you know, uh, scoring perfectly in front of uh, Gianluigi Buffon. So, yes, I think that Spain in this game managed to find some flow after scoring the first goal. They started playing with fluidity, and uh, the scoreline was uh, very heavy. I think Italy by this time were tired, that they'd gone beyond their limits. Um, that was one of the excuses. They travelled more than Spain, although, you know, when you you look at the travelling teams have done over this European Championship in 2021 compared with that, it, it doesn't really feel like uh, all that much. And Chiellini went off injured early and, you know, was, was I think, replaced by, by their Balzaretti. And they, they, were, they changed formation. You know, as, as the tournament progressed, Italy had moved from the 3-5-2 that had worked in that first game to playing this kind of 4-4-2 with the diamond in midfield and and all of a sudden you were seeing the centre of gravity of the team move towards what was this kind of rotating quartet of De Rossi, Pirlo, uh, Marquisio, Montolivo or Thiago Motta. Um, And I think because they'd had they got better and better as the tournament had gone on playing in that system when it came to playing against Spain I think in the cold light of day, perhaps they should have played played a 3-5-2. But there's nothing stopping Spain in this final. They run out 4-0 winners and become the first team to win back-to-back Euros. And they were surely set for yet more glory. I really thought that in 2014, Spain was uh, the strongest candidate to win the World Cup. I really thought that uh, that team with Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets, Silva, Fabregas, uh, going into a World Cup in 2014, at their prime, they were going to be very, very competitive too. But then we saw some hints about uh, what the World Cup could be like in the Confederations Cup 2013, when Brazil just... uh, incinerate Spain in the final really and you know I think that the problem 
with Spain in 2014, two years later, after this massive success in Euro 2012, was that Vicente del Bosque didn't start the renovation before the fiasco. And I think that the great teams, normally they find an antidote uh, before the, the rest of the team, uh, the teams get the hang of their game. I think that Spain repeated many things that they did in 2012, in 2014. I believe that the style became, if anything, a bit slower. Football evolves, and I think that Spain needed an evolution too, and that, that evolution didn't come. And uh, in 2014, and then in Euro 2016, Spain went to the tournaments with a very similar template to the template of 2012 with all their players, and uh, that didn't work at all. So, yeah, I think that in 2013, in the Confederations Cup, you could see a little bit that the possible demolition of the Spanish team was coming. And that was Euro 2012, and without giving too much away, the final part of the Tiki Taka trilogy. What a great tournament. 16 teams, top two go through, tension and jeopardy from the very start. Join us in the next episode when UEFA turn their back on this near-perfect format and adopt the maddening 2014 trudge that even FIFA knew was back in the 1990s. Your experts were Elko Born for the Netherlands, Sasha Gurionov for Russia, Raphael Honigstein for Germany, Lindsay Hooper for England, James Horncastle for Italy, Themis Casares for Greece, Tom Kundert for Portugal, Julien Laurent for France, and Alvaro Romeo for Spain. The History of the European Championships was an Athletic Media Company production. You can subscribe to The Athletic and listen to the rest of the series ad-free by using the promo code theathletic.com forward slash history. The History of the European Championships was written and presented by me, Ian McIntosh, and produced by Abby Patterson. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.